In the prayer Jesus taught His disciples, the prayer we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, there is this supplication. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why did Jesus use that expression? Why was it so much on the minds of the people he taught to pray? Why is it still important to folks today? What does the kingdom of God mean? The kingdom of God is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. The Hebrew prophets also spoke of it to the people. In this worship and Bible study today, we will think about God's kingdom and why we look for kingdom come. Good Sunday morning. This is the worship broadcast sponsored by First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. This broadcast worship and opportunity to study the Christian and Hebrew scriptures is for everyone. You may be familiar with the Bible, having studied it all your life. If so, then you will know there is so much more to learn. You may never have studied scripture because it seems out of reach or maybe even irrelevant. I want to invite you, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, to open your heart and mind to this ancient book, or more accurately, collection of books that speak about the way God spoke to the people then, and still does. In other words, this is a way to connect with God. We begin with the understanding that God loves everyone, everywhere, and that we are all God's children. So thank you for welcoming this preacher to share with you the next hour of your time. I pray it will be an hour well spent and at the end of our time together you will be reminded and refreshed because through this time God's Spirit has touched your heart. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy. I am a follower of Jesus, a person who sincerely cares about you and your spiritual well-being, and I'm a pastor of a wonderful group of Christ followers who love you too. The First Baptist Church of Madison is a ministry committed to reaching out in this inclusive way during a time of pandemic. This is the 20th consecutive live broadcast in which I come to the radio station and speak directly to the congregation who desires to stay safe and keep others safe as well. We love and pray for all people who are seeking God in their own ways. This is our way to offer support and love to one another. You can learn more about our faith community, a community in which you are invited, by going online to our website at www. First Baptist Church of Madison, all spelled out, dot org. There you will find out how to contact us, and you can also listen to this broadcast again by clicking the link to our podcast, Nothing But Grace. The music of Mrs. Sylvia Perkins blesses us every week. When I was a young man, a beautiful movie came out and was very popular. Chariots of Fire inspired people to see beyond the immediate into the eternal, to find the truth of God's kingdom in a world where values can so easily become distorted. 
The music from that movie sets the stage for the next section of this worship. The title of that movie and this piece of music is taken from a Bible story about which I will talk today. Now hear Vangelis's Chariots of Fire. Today, we are thinking about the kingdom of God. Let's begin our journey in the Hebrew scriptures, or what some refer to as the Old Testament. The ministries of the Hebrew prophets, Elijah and Elisha, are recorded in the Bible in the first books of First and Second Kings. Christians in the modern era are less familiar with the contents of these books, and that fact is due, I believe, to our struggles in accepting the Bible as it is and how it was written to be understood. By trying to make it fit into 
modern structures of thought by focusing so intently on the provability of each detail of the text, we are prone to miss the main message intended for us. Now, I'm as guilty, perhaps more so, than most of doing just that. After all, I do believe the scriptures to be a faithful and true account of God's interaction with us. Yet, as I have grown, as I have learned more and more about this amazing book, I've discovered that its true power lies in how God has found a way to reveal himself through the humanity of the authors. Some were strict historians paying close attention to every detail, even in the recording of miraculous events. The gospel writers did this. They were recording what they had witnessed usually firsthand or from an eyewitness source. Because of that, we naturally resonate with their approach along with the unmistakable appeal of the stories of Jesus. Novice readers want the entire Bible to be like that, but it is not. In its pages, we encounter other literature, equally a message from our God to all humanity, set down in a variety of forms and composed by a diverse group of human beings. Because of that, some of what we read is not as easy or as attractive to our modern sensibilities. But the Bible was written through the ages, for the ages, and so we must, if we are wise, learn to appreciate the myriad ways the truth of God is communicated throughout the entire collection of books composed over 1,200 years by over 60 authors. I think the stories surrounding the prophets Elijah and Elisha are a good example of this. The observations made by the author of Kings are not as intimate as the Gospels and as such are not going to impact us in the same ways. There are even portions that are frankly odd and do not fit well with the picture of God that comes into its sharpest focus in the Gospels. For instance, contrast the clear teaching of Jesus who insisted, let the children come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And the rather horrific story recorded in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, in which Elisha, after being teased by a bunch of kids about his bald head, cursed them and caused two bears to maul 42 of the brats. Now, which of these would you insist is more reflective of God's actual attitude toward children? It is problems like the aforementioned that causes us modern Christians to ignore or gloss over the books that fail to meet our criteria, and yet in so doing, we could easily miss the truth of God infused in the legends and the humorous digressions of the author, humor usually lost on us. Now, having said that, we can, if we will not allow ourselves to become bogged down by baffling bear stories, Feel the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing through the text, communicating eternal truth, even through the humanity that inscribed it so long ago. Listen to the description of the prophetic mantle being passed from Elijah to Elisha. Listen for God's voice whispering to us. It is found in 2 Kings, the second chapter, verses 1 through 14. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. 
And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Their names sound familiar, Elijah and Elisha, but that is where the comparisons end and the contrast begin. By nature, Elijah and Elisha were two different men. Elijah, rough-hewn, uncomfortable in a palace as contrasted with Elisha, his apprentice chosen by Yahweh God to carry his message forward. We know he came from a wealthy family and was at ease in the trappings of the rich and famous of his day. His message, however, was just as uncompromising as that of his predecessor. Both men addressed the Hebrew nation at a time of spiritual crisis. It was a time marked by famine, plagues, and warfare. The class divisions were pronounced and people were under great stress. In their depression and despair, they increasingly turned toward pagan practices now, if you see some parallel in those times and our times, then you just might appreciate a bit more the enormous challenges these two prophets had set out before them. Even their names are part of their message. Elijah means Yahweh is God. That may not sound like much to you and me, but it was a powerful statement in his setting. You see, people were not sure who God was. Some thought God was Baal. Baal was attractive and acceptable. Baal worship was with it, and if you wanted to fit in and be successful, it was the way to go. 
Of course, there was the traditional nod to Yahweh, the true God, the God who delivered them from bondage and brought them through the wilderness and was remembered from time to time. Kind of like so many do today who remember their faith on Christmas or Easter or at a church wedding or a funeral when a preacher is called on to reconnect, however briefly, with a faith that once flourished but now has withered. Baal worship was popular, acceptable, and in the final analysis, a counterfeit. Most people worshipped Baal along with God. It was from such as these that Elijah demanded a decision. If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him. Elisha's name meant something too. God is salvation. It is similar to Joshua's name and Jesus' name, which means the Lord is salvation. If you sense that something is happening here, a cycle of scripture, then you are quite perceptive. You see, as Joshua was to Moses, so to Elisha will be to Elijah, and ultimately as Jesus will be to John the Baptist. That was why the people asked John if he was Elijah come back. Thus scripture as an unfolding drama is completed in the central and defining event of the crucifixion, when God's ultimate act of salvation is accomplished. And just as John once uttered regarding Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. So too, Elijah and Elisha had a moment in which the torch was passed to the other, and it was dramatic and beautiful and deeply moving. I also believe it has bearing on the life of the church and the passing of ministry to a new generation yet to come. What is transpiring here in this ancient account that speaks to us? Elijah is growing old. His ministry is nearing completion, yet there is so much yet to be done. Compelled by God, he embarks on what he knows will be his final journey. He attempts to go alone, but Elisha will have nothing of it. In words of devotion and love, he tells his mentor, As the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Elisha sensed it too. This was to be no ordinary trip with the elder prophet. Fifty other men, the sons of the prophets, tagged along. God was up to something, and they were not about to miss it. The ad hoc procession drew to a halt at the bank of the Jordan River, that river which has served more biblical imagery than any other natural barrier was too wide, too deep, and too swift to be easily crossed. It was a border and a barrier. Moses had passed through the Red Sea, Joshua had passed through the Jordan River, and now Elijah would do the same. Taking his outer garment, a cloak or mantle, he rolled it up and whacked the river. Thus the water mounded up, allowing passage on dry land, and thus the connection with Moses and Joshua is made clear. After the crossing was completed, Elijah asked Elisha what last thing he might do for him. Elisha does not ask for fame or fortune that his own life might be made more comfortable or prosperous. He does not request any of a hundred things that might have come to our minds. He asks for a dream, a vision. He asks for the impossible. He asks for something that is not Elijah's to grant. His desire is is that God would use him even more than Elijah to communicate his message of redemption and hope in the God of Israel. Only God could give that. 
But Elijah told him that he might, and the way he would know is that Elisha would be witness to what was about to happen. As they walked and talked a bit more, Elisha noticed a roar. It grew louder and louder. When he turned, he saw something that he described as chariots and horses of fire. At once it separated the two men, and it swirled and swirled around the elder prophet, a whirling tornado lifting him higher and higher and eventually out of sight. Then all was quiet again. Elisha, alone in the desert, wondered what had just happened. He looked at the ground and saw lying there Elijah's sign of authority, his mantle. It was now his, his God had granted his request. Elisha was doubly blessed. Taking the mantle, he returned to the river, and like Elijah, he too crossed over to resume the message of repentance and forgiveness, of restoration and forgiveness. The church today is passing and receiving another mantle. Gone are the days when church work was easy, when all you had to do was open the doors, extend a warm invitation to a neighbor, and the pews were filled. The terrain has changed. The places of worship have moved. People still sense their need of God, but don't seem to connect the answer to their need in religious traditions of their ancestors. Elijah would say they chase after Baals, and we know too well what the Baals are materialism, ambition, and self-seeking pleasure reconstitute Baal every day in a variety of forms. Sadly, some churches have even bowed the knee to Baal by reinforcing these values, calling them God's plan. By so doing, they might draw crowds for a season, but in the end will be found unable to satisfy the longing for God that aches within the human heart. Faithful Christians who sincerely follow Christ, those of us who deeply believe in the message of grace, not just because it meets a cultural requirement, but because it forces us to confront ourselves and wrestle with the truth. We who want to follow Jesus might find the modern state of the church depressing. Yet we believe that God is doing something, something for which we and those who will succeed us will need a double portion of God's blessing. The kingdom of God is the constant concern of the people of God. Whenever justice and mercy are absent from our world, our nation, and our local community, we must move into the darkness and bring the light. In the Academy Award-winning movie Chariots of Fire, a hymn was sung. That hymn, called Jerusalem, was based upon a poem written by the English poet William Blake. In the poem, Jesus visits the England of his day, which was in the throes of the Industrial Revolution. Squalid conditions for the workers broke the health and hopes of the common man as the greedy bosses grew fat and rich off their labors. Far from representing a utopian society, Blake thought the church needed to challenge the dark and satanic mills that enslaved the people. He dreamed of a new day when God's people would arise and be faithful to their calling and together build the new Jerusalem. Here is how the hymn goes. 
And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among those dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spears, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. The church is still called to build Jerusalem, not only in England, but wherever the people of God are. There is a chariot of fire on the way for God's faithful church. That church believes that God is speaking today and will continue to speak tomorrow. While we do not know what the church will be like in 25, 50, or 100 years, we do know that God will be with her and he will be speaking his message through her sons and daughters. So pray for that church to come as the mantle is passed from one generation to the next, from one era to another. Continue to encourage one another to hold firm to the hope we have in Christ. The final act of drama of salvation was played out in Jesus. He too passed through the Jordan through baptism and his invitation is that we should join him. You may take him up on his invitation this very day, this very hour. We need you to join with us to build his kingdom, to tell others of his love and his grace, to demonstrate through your commitment that you intend to follow him. May this be the day you hear the rumble of the wheels and catch a glimpse of his chariot of fire. Let's hear that song, Jerusalem, as sung by the choir called Liberia, as we move into a time of prayer.
Let us pray. Lord, give us our chariot of fire. Give us the courage we need to do what you ask us to do. Love who you ask us to love. Hope for what you ask us to hope. And believe what you ask us to believe. Fill us with confidence for the future of your church. Remove the selfish concerns that encumber us and speak through our words and our actions of love for all your children. May we see the value in one another. May your grace prevail and may your kingdom come quickly. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, Sunday morning greetings once again. It is my honor to call you my friends, and I know of so many stories of the many kindnesses you are engaging in because you know so many are hurting. That reflects well on you and speaks powerfully of your love for Jesus. When I go out and I see you taking the effort to protect yourself and others from disease, as I always do, then I believe your witness for Christ is shining bright, so keep up the good fight. Together we can defeat this virus. Our church family was touched by the death of one of our members on Friday. Laura Jean Hawkins was a faithful member of our church, a dear friend, and she passed into eternal life on Friday. A private funeral for family will be held on Tuesday. Please keep this family in your prayers. Don't forget that you can pick up your free copy of Nurturing Faith Journal and Bible Study anytime. These are located on the table just outside the office door across from the Dollar General Store in Madison. These are for your Bible study, which we will begin shortly. I'm also thrilled to announce we have a new doctor among us. Dr. Eric Johnson has received his degree from the University of Mississippi. Dr. Johnson is relocating to Shelby, North Carolina, where he will teach at Gardner-Webb University. Following this broadcast today, I will be meeting with our deacon board on a conference call. I look forward to hearing your voices as together we advance the work of the gospel in our community and beyond. Many of us are aware and deeply moved by the recent deaths of two men, both fellow Baptists. My friend and colleague, Dr. Larry Hovis, has commended the words of Paul Baxley, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Executive Coordinator. In eulogizing these two Christian leaders, Paul demonstrates the pursuit of racial justice and honest reconciliation is most of all an act of discipleship. Dr. Baxley wrote, In a single day we saw the death of two giants, Today, all of us who follow Jesus should offer prayers of gratitude for the Reverend C.T. Vivian and the Congressman John Lewis and their extraordinary lives of faith. We should certainly surround their families in prayer and rejoice in the promise of resurrection that is given to these and all who follow Christ. Starting more than a half century ago, both of these faithful Christians offered not only their voices, but also their bodies, indeed their whole selves, to the cause of justice and to the deeply held conviction that we are all the children of God. They were not content to be silent or still in the face of injustice. Across decades of work and witness, they embodied St. Paul's challenge that followers of Jesus offer ourselves 
as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, since doing so is an act of real worship. For sure, they were unwilling to be conformed to the world's pattern of injustice and hate. Both men burst on the national stage through courageous actions in some Alabama, when struck in the face so powerfully that he fell to the ground for lifting his voice for the cause of justice, Vivian refused to be silenced. He also refused to strike back. Rather, he stood back up and made the case for justice to the very same law enforcement officer who had knocked him to the ground. Several weeks later, Lewis led 600 protesters across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, right into the face of anger and injustice. Years later, Lewis remembered, You saw these men putting on their gas mask, and behind the state troopers are a group of men, part of the sheriff's posse on horses. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, trampling us with horses, and releasing their tear gas. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. My legs went from under me. I don't know how I made it back across the bridge, but apparently a group just literally took me back. More than 55 years have passed since those days in Selma. And yet in these painful spring and summer days of 2020, we have found ourselves still surrounded by the unavoidable realities of racial injustice and police brutality. Under the prophetic and courageous leadership of Lewis, Vivian, and others, our nation took first steps toward justice and honest reconciliation. They are a powerful reminder of the impact that can be made by faithful followers of Jesus who are willing to speak boldly, act courageously, and demand transformation. They remind us that real transformation is not found only in lofty aspiration or speech. It absolutely requires courageous action and changing laws. It requires a willingness to offer the whole self in sacrificial ways. Now, there are many more steps that need to be taken and many more bridges that need to be crossed. Lewis and Vivian had joined many others in that cloud of witnesses who have run the race before us. The question for this day is whether those who lead the church or who call ourselves followers of Jesus will also be willing to stand up, speak out, and offer ourselves as living sacrifices so that all the children of God, black, brown, and white, might know justice, righteousness, and peace. These days, Lewis's words are particularly poignant. In an address at Bates College in 2016, Lewis, who represented Georgia's 5th Congressional District that includes the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Decatur offices, reflected on his relationship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and gave voice to a theme that resonated across his life. King Lewis said, inspired me to stand up, to speak up and speak out. And I got in the way. I got in trouble. Good trouble. Necessary trouble. You must find a way to get in the way and get in good trouble. Necessary trouble. You have a moral obligation, a mission, and a mandate when you leave here to go out and seek justice for all. You can do it. You must do it. The pursuit of racial justice and honest reconciliation is most of all an act of discipleship. It flows naturally from following Jesus who called us to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. For that reason, we cannot opt out of it. We must be found faithful. That calling requires not only our prayers, our words, and our hopes, but also our actions and our whole selves. 
We are called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as holy interruptions, as signs of grace, and demonstrations of justice. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it. We must do it. The cloak is concluded. The words of Paul Baxley and of Cooperative Baptist Fellowship exemplify a longing for the kingdom come. Before we go into our Bible study time, let's hear our choir sing a song of God's kingdom. This is The Spirit Sings, arranged by Mark Hayes.
Dr. Tony Cartledge in his Bible study found in Nurturing Faith magazine begins his lesson today by saying the following. Some things are just too difficult to describe in technical terms alone. How does one explain love or pride or an adrenaline rush? When vocabulary and logic fail, stories come to the rescue. When Jesus tried to explain such difficult concepts as the kingdom of God, he told stories that had the power to enlighten those who had the ears of faith and discernment to listen while leaving hard-hearted and hard-headed people in the dark. For the past several weeks, we have been looking at the parables of Jesus that concern the kingdom of God. Jesus continually contrasts the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of Satan for the kingdom of this world. This encouragement is for us to understand what his kingdom is and how we might be an active participant in bringing it about. We have heard the parables of the sower and the seed and the wheat and the tares. Today we will hear several more parables of Jesus, all of which concern the coming kingdom. Listen now as I read from Matthew, the 13th chapter, verses 31 through 34, including in 44 through 52. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus told the crowds all of these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into the baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore... Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Jesus spoke in parables for a specific reason. He wanted to communicate to his audiences great truths that were somehow obscured in the theological debates of his day. He wanted them to see the simple truth that had become too difficult to discern among the complexities of that day. Jesus spoke to the people through what was plainly and easily seen. He speaks of farming. He speaks to fishermen finding pearls and sorting fish. He speaks of baking bread. These are all activities with which people can relate. One does not need a theological degree or a political connection to understand what the kingdom of God is all about. Yet while these stories are simple in their content, they are deeply profound in their implications. One cannot hear a parable of Jesus and simply walk away. His stories seep into our souls and create fertile ground where new growth may occur. 
In the background of every parable, there is the desire for the coming kingdom of God. The people desperately wanted God's kingdom. They longed for it. They talked about it. They dreamt of it. They prayed continually for it. I do not think it is too hard of a concept for us to grasp today, but before we try and understand what the kingdom of God means to us, we need to understand what the kingdom of God meant to Jesus and his original audience. As they heard him describe God's kingdom, they were profoundly impressed by his wisdom, and some were moved to respond. Some responded with curiosity and wonder. They pondered if Jesus had found some insight that they had so far missed. As they evaluated the world of their day, as troubled as it was, they began to see that God was with them and that he would bring about the kingdom he promised so long ago. Others in the audience who heard Jesus responded with anger and resentment. He was challenging their ideas about the kingdom of heaven. If the people believed Jesus, it would erode their power to persuade and control the people. His message might forestall the outcome they desired. What outcome did they hope to obtain? Unless we understand what it was they thought the kingdom of God might look like, we will not understand why Jesus's words impacted them so strongly. The history of the Jewish people is a history of struggle. Now, I suppose that every race and ethnicity has its own unique story. Every heritage has its heroes and its villains. Yet when it comes to the history of the Hebrew people, we find a universal connection. This is intentional. I believe it was God's plan to speak through these people who were chosen to offer his hope for the world. Through them, he still does. I was very moved this last week to learn the story about a rabbi from a synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Not too long ago, his house of worship was viciously attacked by a white supremacist, an anti-immigrant advocate. The rabbi's people had been shot and killed in an act of terroristic violence. Now, it had been some time since that had occurred. The recollection of that day has changed him. I discovered that he no longer uses the four-letter word. What four-letter word? The word is hate. Something within his soul cries out for the kingdom of God, and in God's kingdom, that word cannot exist. Not only can we identify with the struggles that we see today, but historically we can all sympathize and empathize with the people who struggled to find hope in times of natural and man-made disaster. They struggled with the effects of flood and drought and famine. They were enslaved and treated cruelly by people who did not believe their lives mattered. They found hope and deliverance in God, and through the words of remarkable leaders, these special individuals helped guide them to a land they could call their own. Still, their struggle was not over. They needed to wrestle with living in a challenging environment. There were other people there, other people with other ideas. They needed a way to express their own ideas about God and his kingdom. And being human, they made mistakes along the way. They confused the meaning of God's kingdom and reduced it to worldly power. They grew nationalistic and lost an understanding of God's universal appeal. For their confusion, they paid a price. The earthly kingdom was abolished. Yet God saw into their hearts. It was the good in them that brought them back and gave them another chance. 
Nevertheless, that old desire to establish their own exclusive kingdom where only they were the beneficiaries of God's graciousness was a strong temptation. Again, that kingdom was threatened. First, it was the Hellenized people, the Greeks, and then along came the Roman army. Officially, the Jewish kingdom existed. It was, however, not really theirs. In Jesus' time, it was known as the land of Judah. The Romans, however, called it Palestina. They installed a puppet king named Herod. The kingdom of the Jews was elusive, a longed-for concept more than a reality. Every Jew pondered the question, when will the kingdom of God return? What can we do to bring it about? To that question, several options were proposed. Each of these answers visualized an exclusively Jewish kingdom where temple worship was the central component of religious practice. They wanted their nation to be independent of all outsiders called Gentiles. They wanted the practice of their religion to be unpolluted by a foreign presence. During the time of Jesus' ministry, this was not the reality. The Romans were in charge. The Romans even selected who could be the high priest of the Jewish people. And so when the people of Jesus' day dreamt of the kingdom of God, they dreamt of the day when they might once again be free to practice their devotion to God without foreign interference. In order to bring that day about, several ideas were offered. One of those was direct and violent opposition to the Gentile presence in their land. This involved killing and what we call today terrorism. Those who were involved in this activity believed that God would rally to their defense, and when war broke out, he would once and for all settle the score with the foreign occupiers. Another way of dealing with the question of how to bring about the kingdom of God was escapism. Those who advocated that the kingdom of God would one day come to the end of time and they retreated to isolated communities where they could practice their faith in relative obscurity. In tight religious communities, they waited for the end of the world, which they believed was imminent. Two other groups of kingdom watchers worked together, but in an agreed but distinctive way. One faction focused on preservation, while the other focused on purification. The party of the Sadducees led the cause of preservation. It was their sincere endeavor to try and find ways that they might get along with the Roman overlords and yet still retain the heart of their faith. Their job was extremely difficult, yet they felt, and justifiably so, that it was probably the best way for the Jewish kingdom to survive. Often working alongside the Sadducees, yet with a different plan, was the party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees longed for the kingdom of God as well. Their answer, though, was different. They encouraged individual people to obey intricate religious laws. These laws demanded an intense and restricted lifestyle that few could even understand, much less obey. Nevertheless, the Pharisees insisted that a more perfect religious performance would impress the Almighty. Then God would respond by bringing about his kingdom. These then were the ways the people of Jesus' day hoped for God's coming kingdom. Their options, it seemed, were limited to violence, escape, compromise, or personal perfection. At this point, I would like to take a moment to reflect on how even now our desire to bring about God's kingdom very often follows the same plan. We too have those who think that in order to bring about God's kingdom, we must resort to violence or escape 
or just getting along as best we can or trying to be perfect people whom God will have to love. If you look at significant religious movements in our world today, I believe that you will be able to see that the parallels are abundant and clear. Now we are ready. Now let's go back to see what Jesus said about bringing about the kingdom of God. His way was different than the answers provided then and now. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he speaks as if it is a foregone conclusion. He affirms it is coming. In the Lord's Prayer, we recite the line, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There were two very important distinctions that Jesus made about the coming kingdom that was difficult for many to hear and believe. Yet, for those who did listen to his words, it changed history. The first distinction Jesus made, and he made it over and over again, is the idea that God's kingdom is inclusive. God may have worked through a group of people to deliver his message of hope, but his message of hope was for the world. This is so strongly underlined by the Apostle John in his gospel when he writes, quoting Jesus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him might have life everlasting. The most radical part of this statement was and remains the universality of God's love. It speaks of human initiative by which we may choose to accept his love, but in so doing we must also accept his love for the entire world. We must embrace his love for others. The two go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. How odd it is when some folks try to utilize this passage of Scripture as a means of exclusion when Jesus clearly meant it as an expression of inclusion. It is his open invitation to everyone, both Jew and Gentile alike, to find that the kingdom of God is for them. The second thing that Jesus does is he changes the concept of the kingdom of God to make it personal. We don't come into the kingdom of God through ritual or by going into buildings. Rituals and buildings can help us, but the beginning of our relationship with the kingdom of heaven is through the heart. Jesus infuriated the people of his day when he noted, Tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. You see, they could not conceive of the kingdom of God apart from the temple building, where religious ritual was practiced. Jesus, however, indicates that the kingdom of God is not dependent upon a building, neither is it dependent on a ritual. The kingdom of God depends on nothing but grace. God's grace, grace available to everyone, is the foundation of God's kingdom. Each of these parables told by Jesus supports the idea of that kind of kingdom. It is a kingdom of forgiveness. It is a kingdom of justice. It is a kingdom in which we are called to participate in right now. Last week, commenting upon the announcement of the death of John Lewis, historian John Meacham made an interesting observation. Both John Lewis and John Meacham are Christian. John Lewis grew up not far from where I was born in South Alabama. Living not far from Troy, he experienced the pain of a segregated society, yet he felt God's call upon his life. As a young man, he dreamt of how God might use him. He began by preaching to the chickens on his daddy's farm. As he grew into manhood, he became involved in the civil rights movement, and when he died last week at age 80, he was serving as a representative from the state of Georgia. John Meacham is also a Christian. He is a committed member and active in the Episcopalian Church. So I was interested to hear his comments about this honorable man who had just died. I was interested in Meacham's historical and his Christian perspective. 
In his reflection, Meacham noted something about the kingdom of God. He observed that Representative Lewis, and he had a difference of opinion regarding God's coming kingdom. He said, John Lewis believed it is attainable here and now. Meacham, perhaps because of his work as an historian, sees it differently. He believes also in God's kingdom, but he does see its fulfillment this side of eternity. Both men believe in God's kingdom. Both men believe that we should work towards seeing God's kingdom come. Both men understand it must be a kingdom of human equality and equal justice and abundant mercy. God's coming kingdom is just like a mustard seed. It seems so small at times. It might be like preaching to chickens or expressing a longing for justice to a class of history students. But God's kingdom always begins with a seed, a seed that will grow. The kingdom of heaven is a little leaven that causes the bread to rise. It is a pearl that begins as a speck of sand, irritating an oyster that grows into a valuable jewel. And God knows that one day he will find the good and they will be blessed and they will be chosen. Justice will come. Mercy will prevail. Lewis and Meacham have slightly different ideas. So who is right? Is God's kingdom coming now or coming later? The answer is yes. We are to work right now to see God's kingdom come. It is not optional. It cannot be delayed. It may come tomorrow or the next day, but it is on the way. So do not allow yourself to fall into despair. Do not become angry and violent trying to force your concept of God's kingdom on someone else. Do not retreat into isolation and escape by waiting for the end of the world and predicting doom for everyone who doesn't agree with you. Please do not water down God's grace or make it so impossible that none can achieve it. Instead, open your heart to the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is coming for everyone. This has been weekly worship and Bible study broadcast brought to you live by people who love called First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. We would love you to contact us. We're not looking for money, but to connect you with God who loves you. Please tune in again next week as we broadcast from this radio station. In the prayer Jesus taught his disciples, the prayer we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, there is this supplication. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why did Jesus use that expression? Why was it so much on the minds of the people he taught to pray? Why is it still important to folks today? What does the kingdom of God mean? The kingdom of God is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. The Hebrew prophets also spoke of it to the people. In this worship and Bible study today, we will think about God's kingdom and why we look for kingdom come. Good Sunday morning. This is the worship broadcast sponsored by First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. This broadcast worship and opportunity to study the Christian and Hebrew scriptures is for everyone. 
You may be familiar with the Bible, having studied it all your life. If so, then you will know there is so much more to learn. You may never have studied Scripture because it seems out of reach or maybe even irrelevant. I want to invite you, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, to open your heart and mind to this ancient book, or more accurately, collection of books that speak about the way God spoke to the people then, and still does. In other words, this is a way to connect with God. We begin with the understanding that God loves everyone, everywhere, and that we are all God's children. So thank you for welcoming this preacher to share with you the next hour of your time. I pray it will be an hour well spent and at the end of our time together you will be reminded and refreshed because through this time God's Spirit has touched your heart. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy. I am a follower of Jesus, a person who sincerely cares about you and your spiritual well-being, and I'm a pastor of a wonderful group of Christ followers who love you too. The First Baptist Church of Madison is a ministry committed to reaching out in this inclusive way during a time of pandemic. This is the 20th consecutive live broadcast in which I come to the radio station and speak directly to the congregation who desires to stay safe and keep others safe as well. We love and pray for all people who are seeking God in their own ways. This is our way to offer support and love to one another. You can learn more about our faith community, a community in which you are invited, by going online to our website at www. First Baptist Church of Madison, all spelled out, dot org. There you will find out how to contact us, and you can also listen to this broadcast again by clicking the link to our podcast, Nothing But Grace. The music of Mrs. Sylvia Perkins blesses us every week. When I was a young man, a beautiful movie came out and was very popular. Chariots of Fire inspired people to see beyond the immediate into the eternal, to find the truth of God's kingdom in a world where values can so easily become distorted. The music from that movie sets the stage for the next section of this worship. The title of that movie and this piece of music is taken from a Bible story about which I will talk today. Now hear Vangelis' Chariots of Fire.
today, we are thinking about the kingdom of God. Let's begin our journey in the Hebrew scriptures, or what some refer to as the Old Testament. The ministries of the Hebrew prophets Elijah and Elisha are recorded in the Bible in the first books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Christians in the modern era are less familiar with the contents of these books, and that fact is due, I believe, to our struggles in accepting the Bible as it is and how it was written to be understood. By trying to make it fit into modern structures of thought by focusing so intently on the provability of each detail of the text, we are prone to miss the main message intended for us. Now, I'm as guilty, perhaps more so than most, of doing just that. After all, I do believe the scriptures to be a faithful and true account of God's interaction with us. Yet, as I have grown, as I have learned more and more about this amazing book, I've discovered that its true power lies in how God has found a way to reveal himself through the humanity of the authors. Some were strict historians paying close attention to every detail, even in the recording of miraculous events. The gospel writers did this. They were recording what they had witnessed usually firsthand or from an eyewitness source. Because of that, we naturally resonate with their approach along with the unmistakable appeal of the stories of Jesus. Novice readers want the entire Bible to be like that, but it is not. In its pages, we encounter other literature, equally a message from our God to all humanity, set down in a variety of forms and composed by a diverse group of human beings. Because of that, some of what we read is not as easy or as attractive to our modern sensibilities. But the Bible was written through the ages, for the ages, and so we must, if we are wise, learn to appreciate the myriad ways the truth of God is communicated throughout the entire collection of books composed over 1,200 years by over 60 authors. I think the stories surrounding the prophets Elijah and Elisha are a good example of this. The observations made by the author of Kings are not as intimate as the Gospels and as such are not going to impact us in the same ways. There are even portions that are frankly odd and do not fit well with the picture of God that comes into its sharpest focus in the Gospels. For instance, contrast the clear teaching of Jesus who insisted, let the children come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And the rather horrific story recorded in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, in which Elisha, after being teased by a bunch of kids about his bald head, cursed them and caused two bears to maul 42 of the brats. Now, which of these would you insist is more reflective of God's actual attitude toward children? It is problems like the aforementioned that causes us modern Christians to ignore or gloss over the books that fail to meet our criteria, and yet in so doing, we could easily miss the truth of God infused in the legends and the humorous digressions of the author, humor usually lost on us. 
Now, having said that, we can, if we will not allow ourselves to become bogged down by baffling bear stories, feel the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing through the text, communicating eternal truth, even through the humanity that inscribed it so long ago. Listen to the description of the prophetic mantle being passed from Elijah to Elisha. Listen for God's voice whispering to us. It is found in 2 Kings, the second chapter, verses 1 through 14. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Their names sound familiar, Elijah and Elisha, but that is where the comparisons end and the contrast begin. By nature, Elijah and Elisha were two different men. Elijah, rough-hewn, uncomfortable in a palace as contrasted with Elisha, his apprentice chosen by Yahweh God to carry his message forward. We know he came from a wealthy family and was at ease in the trappings of the rich and famous of his day. His message, however, was just as uncompromising as that of his predecessor. Both men addressed the Hebrew nation at a time of spiritual crisis. It was a time marked by famine, plagues, and warfare. The class divisions were pronounced, and people were under great stress. 
In their depression and despair, they increasingly turn toward pagan practices. Now, if you see some parallel in those times and our times, then you just might appreciate a bit more the enormous challenges these two prophets had set out before them. Even their names are part of their message. Elijah means Yahweh is God. That may not sound like much to you and me, but it was a powerful statement in his setting. You see, people were not sure who God was. Some thought God was Baal. Baal was attractive and acceptable. Baal worship was with it, and if you wanted to fit in and be successful, it was the way to go. Of course, there was the traditional nod to Yahweh, the true God, the God who delivered them from bondage and brought them through the wilderness and was remembered from time to time, kind of like so many do today who remember their faith on Christmas or Easter or at a church wedding or a funeral when a preacher is called on to reconnect, however briefly, with a faith that once flourished but now has withered. Baal worship was popular, acceptable, and in the final analysis, a counterfeit. Most people worshipped Baal along with God. It was from such as these that Elijah demanded a decision. If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him. Elisha's name meant something too. God is salvation. It is similar to Joshua's name and Jesus' name, which means the Lord is salvation. If you sense that something is happening here, a cycle of scripture, then you are quite perceptive. You see, as Joshua was to Moses, so to Elisha will be to Elijah, and ultimately as Jesus will be to John the Baptist. That was why the people asked John if he was Elijah come back. Thus scripture as an unfolding drama is completed in the central and defining event of the crucifixion, when God's ultimate act of salvation is accomplished. And just as John once uttered regarding Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. So too, Elijah and Elisha had a moment in which the torch was passed to the other, and it was dramatic and beautiful and deeply moving. I also believe it has bearing on the life of the church and the passing of ministry to a new generation yet to come. What is transpiring here in this ancient account that speaks to us? Elijah is growing old. His ministry is nearing completion, yet there is so much yet to be done. Compelled by God, he embarks on what he knows will be his final journey. He attempts to go alone, but Elisha will have nothing of it. In words of devotion and love, he tells his mentor, As the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Elisha sensed it too. This was to be no ordinary trip with the elder prophet. Fifty other men, the sons of the prophets, tagged along. God was up to something, and they were not about to miss it. The ad hoc procession drew to a halt at the bank of the Jordan River, that river which has served more biblical imagery than any other natural barrier was too wide, too deep, and too swift to be easily crossed. It was a border and a barrier. Moses had passed through the Red Sea, Joshua had passed through the Jordan River, and now Elijah would do the same. 
Taking his outer garment, a cloak or mantle, he rolled it up and whacked the river. Thus the water mounded up, allowing passage on dry land, and thus the connection with Moses and Joshua is made clear. After the crossing was completed, Elijah asked Elisha what last thing he might do for him. Elisha does not ask for fame or fortune, that his own life might be made more comfortable or prosperous. He does not request any of a hundred things that might have come to our minds. He asks for a dream, a vision. He asks for the impossible. He asks for something that is not Elijah's to grant. His desire is that God would use him even more than Elijah to communicate his message of redemption and hope in the God of Israel. Only God could give that. But Elijah told him that he might, and the way he would know is that Elisha would be witness to what was about to happen. As they walked and talked a bit more, Elisha noticed a roar. It grew louder and louder. When he turned, he saw something that he described as chariots and horses of fire. At once it separated the two men, and it swirled and swirled around the elder prophet, a whirling tornado lifting him higher and higher and eventually out of sight. Then all was quiet again. Elisha, alone in the desert, wondered what had just happened. He looked at the ground and saw lying there Elijah's sign of authority, his mantle. It was now his, his God had granted his request. Elisha was doubly blessed. Taking the mantle, he returned to the river, and like Elijah, he too crossed over to resume the message of repentance and forgiveness, of restoration and forgiveness. The church today is passing and receiving another mantle. Gone are the days when church work was easy, when all you had to do was open the doors, extend a warm invitation to a neighbor, and the pews were filled. The terrain has changed. The places of worship have moved. People still sense their need of God, but don't seem to connect the answer to their need in religious traditions of their ancestors. Elijah would say, they chase after Baals, and we know too well what the Baals are. Materialism, ambition, and self-seeking pleasure reconstitute Baal every day in a variety of forms. Sadly, some churches have even bowed the knee to Baal by reinforcing these values, calling them God's plan. By so doing, they might draw crowds for a season, but in the end will be found unable to satisfy the longing for God that aches within the human heart. Faithful Christians who sincerely follow Christ, those of us who deeply believe in the message of grace, not just because it meets a cultural requirement, but because it forces us to confront ourselves and wrestle with the truth. We who want to follow Jesus might find the modern state of the church depressing. Yet we believe that God is doing something, something for which we and those who will succeed us will need a double portion of God's blessing. The kingdom of God is the constant concern of the people of God. Whenever justice and mercy are absent from our world, our nation, and our local community, we must move into the darkness and bring the light. 
In the Academy Award-winning movie Chariots of Fire, a hymn was sung. That hymn called Jerusalem was based upon a poem written by the English poet William Blake. In the poem, Jesus visits the England of his day, which was in the throes of the Industrial Revolution. Squalid conditions for the workers broke the health and hopes of the common man as the greedy bosses grew fat and rich off their labors. Far from representing a utopian society, Blake thought the church needed to challenge the dark and satanic mills that enslaved the people. He dreamed of a new day when God's people would arise and be faithful to their calling and together build the new Jerusalem. Here is how the hymn goes. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among those dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spears, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. The church is still called to build Jerusalem, not only in England, but wherever the people of God are. There is a chariot of fire on the way for God's faithful church. That church believes that God is speaking today and will continue to speak tomorrow. While we do not know what the church will be like in 25, 50, or 100 years, we do know that God will be with her and he will be speaking his message through her sons and daughters. So pray for that church to come as the mantle is passed from one generation to the next, from one era to another. Continue to encourage one another to hold firm to the hope we have in Christ. The final act of drama of salvation was played out in Jesus. He too passed through the Jordan through baptism and his invitation is that we should join him. You may take him up on his invitation this very day, this very hour. We need you to join with us to build his kingdom, to tell others of his love and his grace, to demonstrate through your commitment that you intend to follow him. May this be the day you hear the rumble of the wheels and catch a glimpse of his chariot of fire. Let's hear that song, Jerusalem, as sung by the choir called Liberia as we move into a time of prayer.
Let us pray. Lord, give us our chariot of fire. Give us the courage we need to do what you ask us to do. Love who you ask us to love. Hope for what you ask us to hope. And believe what you ask us to believe. Fill us with confidence for the future of your church. Remove the selfish concerns that encumber us and speak through our words and our actions of love for all your children. May we see the value in one another. May your grace prevail and may your kingdom come quickly. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, Sunday morning greetings once again. It is my honor to call you my friends, and I know of so many stories of the many kindnesses you are engaging in because you know so many are hurting. That reflects well on you and speaks powerfully of your love for Jesus. When I go out and I see you taking the effort to protect yourself and others from disease, as I always do, then I believe your witness for Christ is shining bright, so keep up the good fight. Together we can defeat this virus. Our church family was touched by the death of one of our members on Friday. Laura Jean Hawkins was a faithful member of our church, a dear friend, and she passed into eternal life on Friday. A private funeral for family will be held on Tuesday. Please keep this family in your prayers. Don't forget that you can pick up your free copy of Nurturing Faith Journal and Bible Study anytime. These are located on the table just outside the office door across from the Dollar General Store in Madison. These are for your Bible study, which we will begin shortly. I'm also thrilled to announce we have a new doctor among us. Dr. Eric Johnson has received his degree from the University of Mississippi. Dr. Johnson is relocating to Shelby, North Carolina, where he will teach at Gardner-Webb University. Following this broadcast today, I will be meeting with our deacon board on a conference call. I look forward to hearing your voices as together we advance the work of the gospel in our community and beyond. Many of us are aware and deeply moved by the recent deaths of two men, both fellow Baptists. My friend and colleague, Dr. Larry Hovis, has commended the words of Paul Baxley, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Executive Coordinator. In eulogizing these two Christian leaders, Paul demonstrates the pursuit of racial justice and honest reconciliation is most of all an act of discipleship. Dr. Baxley wrote, In a single day we saw the death of two giants, Today, all of us who follow Jesus should offer prayers of gratitude for the Reverend C.T. Vivian and the Congressman John Lewis and their extraordinary lives of faith. We should certainly surround their families in prayer and rejoice in the promise of resurrection that is given to these and all who follow Christ. Starting more than a half century ago, both of these faithful Christians offered not only their voices, but also their bodies, indeed their whole selves, to the cause of justice and to the deeply held conviction that we are all the children of God. They were not content to be silent or still in the face of injustice. Across decades of work and witness, they embodied St. Paul's challenge that followers of Jesus offer ourselves 
as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, since doing so is an act of real worship. For sure, they were unwilling to be conformed to the world's pattern of injustice and hate. Both men burst on the national stage through courageous actions in some Alabama, when struck in the face so powerfully that he fell to the ground for lifting his voice for the cause of justice, Vivian refused to be silenced. He also refused to strike back. Rather, he stood back up and made the case for justice to the very same law enforcement officer who had knocked him to the ground. Several weeks later, Lewis led 600 protesters across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, right into the face of anger and injustice. Years later, Lewis remembered, You saw these men putting on their gas mask, and behind the state troopers are a group of men, part of the sheriff's posse on horses. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, trampling us with horses, and releasing their tear gas. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. My legs went from under me. I don't know how I made it back across the bridge, but apparently a group just literally took me back. More than 55 years have passed since those days in Selma. And yet in these painful spring and summer days of 2020, we have found ourselves still surrounded by the unavoidable realities of racial injustice and police brutality. Under the prophetic and courageous leadership of Lewis, Vivian, and others, our nation took first steps toward justice and honest reconciliation. They are a powerful reminder of the impact that can be made by faithful followers of Jesus who are willing to speak boldly, act courageously, and demand transformation. They remind us that real transformation is not found only in lofty aspiration or speech. It absolutely requires courageous action and changing laws. It requires a willingness to offer the whole self in sacrificial ways. Now, there are many more steps that need to be taken and many more bridges that need to be crossed. Lewis and Vivian had joined many others in that cloud of witnesses who have run the race before us. The question for this day is whether those who lead the church or who call ourselves followers of Jesus will also be willing to stand up, speak out, and offer ourselves as living sacrifices so that all the children of God, black, brown, and white, might know justice, righteousness, and peace. These days, Lewis's words are particularly poignant. In an address at Bates College in 2016, Lewis, who represented Georgia's 5th Congressional District that includes the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Decatur offices, reflected on his relationship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and gave voice to a theme that resonated across his life. King Lewis said, inspired me to stand up, to speak up and speak out. And I got in the way. I got in trouble. Good trouble. Necessary trouble. You must find a way to get in the way and get in good trouble. Necessary trouble. You have a moral obligation, a mission, and a mandate when you leave here to go out and seek justice for all. You can do it. You must do it. The pursuit of racial justice and honest reconciliation is most of all an act of discipleship. It flows naturally from following Jesus who called us to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. For that reason, we cannot opt out of it. We must be found faithful. That calling requires not only our prayers, our words, and our hopes, but also our actions and our whole selves. 
We are called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as holy interruptions, as signs of grace, and demonstrations of justice. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it. We must do it. The cloak is concluded. The words of Paul Baxley and of Cooperative Baptist Fellowship exemplify a longing for the kingdom come. Before we go into our Bible study time, let's hear our choir sing a song of God's kingdom. This is The Spirit Sings, arranged by Mark Hayes.
Dr. Tony Cartledge in his Bible study found in Nurturing Faith magazine begins his lesson today by saying the following. Some things are just too difficult to describe in technical terms alone. How does one explain love or pride or an adrenaline rush? When vocabulary and logic fail, stories come to the rescue. When Jesus tried to explain such difficult concepts as the kingdom of God, he told stories that had the power to enlighten those who had the ears of faith and discernment to listen while leaving hard-hearted and hard-headed people in the dark. For the past several weeks, we have been looking at the parables of Jesus that concern the kingdom of God. Jesus continually contrasts the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of Satan for the kingdom of this world. This encouragement is for us to understand what his kingdom is and how we might be an active participant in bringing it about. We have heard the parables of the sower and the seed and the wheat and the tares. Today we will hear several more parables of Jesus, all of which concern the coming kingdom. Listen now as I read from Matthew, the 13th chapter, verses 31 through 34, including in 44 through 52. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus told the crowds all of these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into the baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore... Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Jesus spoke in parables for a specific reason. He wanted to communicate to his audiences great truths that were somehow obscured in the theological debates of his day. He wanted them to see the simple truth that had become too difficult to discern among the complexities of that day. Jesus spoke to the people through what was plainly and easily seen. He speaks of farming. He speaks to fishermen finding pearls and sorting fish. He speaks of baking bread. These are all activities with which people can relate. One does not need a theological degree or a political connection to understand what the kingdom of God is all about. Yet while these stories are simple in their content, they are deeply profound in their implications. One cannot hear a parable of Jesus and simply walk away. His stories seep into our souls and create fertile ground where new growth may occur. 
In the background of every parable, there is the desire for the coming kingdom of God. The people desperately wanted God's kingdom. They longed for it. They talked about it. They dreamt of it. They prayed continually for it. I do not think it is too hard of a concept for us to grasp today, but before we try and understand what the kingdom of God means to us, we need to understand what the kingdom of God meant to Jesus and his original audience. As they heard him describe God's kingdom, they were profoundly impressed by his wisdom, and some were moved to respond. Some responded with curiosity and wonder. They pondered if Jesus had found some insight that they had so far missed. As they evaluated the world of their day, as troubled as it was, they began to see that God was with them and that he would bring about the kingdom he promised so long ago. Others in the audience who heard Jesus responded with anger and resentment. He was challenging their ideas about the kingdom of heaven. If the people believed Jesus, it would erode their power to persuade and control the people. His message might forestall the outcome they desired. What outcome did they hope to obtain? Unless we understand what it was they thought the kingdom of God might look like, we will not understand why Jesus's words impacted them so strongly. The history of the Jewish people is a history of struggle. Now, I suppose that every race and ethnicity has its own unique story. Every heritage has its heroes and its villains. Yet when it comes to the history of the Hebrew people, we find a universal connection. This is intentional. I believe it was God's plan to speak through these people who were chosen to offer his hope for the world. Through them, he still does. I was very moved this last week to learn the story about a rabbi from a synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Not too long ago, his house of worship was viciously attacked by a white supremacist, an anti-immigrant advocate. The rabbi's people had been shot and killed in an act of terroristic violence. Now, it had been some time since that had occurred. The recollection of that day has changed him. I discovered that he no longer uses the four-letter word. What four-letter word? The word is hate. Something within his soul cries out for the kingdom of God, and in God's kingdom, that word cannot exist. Not only can we identify with the struggles that we see today, but historically we can all sympathize and empathize with the people who struggled to find hope in times of natural and man-made disaster. They struggled with the effects of flood and drought and famine. They were enslaved and treated cruelly by people who did not believe their lives mattered. They found hope and deliverance in God. And through the words of remarkable leaders, these special individuals helped guide them to a land they could call their own. Still, their struggle was not over. They needed to wrestle with living in a challenging environment. There were other people there, other people with other ideas. They needed a way to express their own ideas about God and his kingdom. And being human, they made mistakes along the way. They confused the meaning of God's kingdom and reduced it to worldly power. They grew nationalistic and lost an understanding of God's universal appeal. For their confusion, they paid a price. The earthly kingdom was abolished. Yet God saw into their hearts. It was the good in them that brought them back and gave them another chance. 
Nevertheless, that old desire to establish their own exclusive kingdom where only they were the beneficiaries of God's graciousness was a strong temptation. Again, that kingdom was threatened. First, it was the Hellenized people, the Greeks, and then along came the Roman army. Officially, the Jewish kingdom existed. It was, however, not really theirs. In Jesus's time, it was known as the land of Judah. The Romans, however, called it Palestina. They installed a puppet king named Herod. The kingdom of the Jews was elusive, a longed-for concept more than a reality. Every Jew pondered the question, when will the kingdom of God return? What can we do to bring it about? To that question, several options were proposed. Each of these answers visualized an exclusively Jewish kingdom where temple worship was the central component of religious practice. They wanted their nation to be independent of all outsiders called Gentiles. They wanted the practice of their religion to be unpolluted by a foreign presence. During the time of Jesus' ministry, this was not the reality. The Romans were in charge. The Romans even selected who could be the high priest of the Jewish people. And so when the people of Jesus' day dreamt of the kingdom of God, they dreamt of the day when they might once again be free to practice their devotion to God without foreign interference. In order to bring that day about, several ideas were offered. One of those was direct and violent opposition to the Gentile presence in their land. This involved killing and what we call today terrorism. Those who were involved in this activity believed that God would rally to their defense, and when war broke out, he would once and for all settle the score with the foreign occupiers. Another way of dealing with the question of how to bring about the kingdom of God was escapism. Those who advocated that the kingdom of God would one day come to the end of time and they retreated to isolated communities where they could practice their faith in relative obscurity. In tight religious communities, they waited for the end of the world, which they believed was imminent. Two other groups of kingdom watchers worked together, but in an agreed but distinctive way. One faction focused on preservation, while the other focused on purification. The party of the Sadducees led the cause of preservation. It was their sincere endeavor to try and find ways that they might get along with the Roman overlords and yet still retain the heart of their faith. Their job was extremely difficult, yet they felt, and justifiably so, that it was probably the best way for the Jewish kingdom to survive. Often working alongside the Sadducees, yet with a different plan, was the party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees longed for the kingdom of God as well. Their answer, though, was different. They encouraged individual people to obey intricate religious laws. These laws demanded an intense and restricted lifestyle that few could even understand, much less obey. Nevertheless, the Pharisees insisted that a more perfect religious performance would impress the Almighty. Then God would respond by bringing about his kingdom. These then were the ways the people of Jesus' day hoped for God's coming kingdom. Their options, it seemed, were limited to violence, escape, compromise, or personal perfection. At this point, I would like to take a moment to reflect on how even now our desire to bring about God's kingdom very often follows the same plan. We too have those who think that in order to bring about God's kingdom, we must resort to violence or escape 
or just getting along as best we can or trying to be perfect people whom God will have to love. If you look at significant religious movements in our world today, I believe that you will be able to see that the parallels are abundant and clear. Now we are ready. Now let's go back to see what Jesus said about bringing about the kingdom of God. His way was different than the answers provided then and now. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he speaks as if it is a foregone conclusion. He affirms it is coming. In the Lord's Prayer, we recite the line, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There were two very important distinctions that Jesus made about the coming kingdom that was difficult for many to hear and believe. Yet, for those who did listen to his words, it changed history. The first distinction Jesus made, and he made it over and over again, is the idea that God's kingdom is inclusive. God may have worked through a group of people to deliver his message of hope, but his message of hope was for the world. This is so strongly underlined by the Apostle John in his gospel when he writes, quoting Jesus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him might have life everlasting. The most radical part of this statement was and remains the universality of God's love. It speaks of human initiative by which we may choose to accept his love, but in so doing we must also accept his love for the entire world. We must embrace his love for others. The two go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. How odd it is when some folks try to utilize this passage of Scripture as a means of exclusion when Jesus clearly meant it as an expression of inclusion. It is his open invitation to everyone, both Jew and Gentile alike, to find that the kingdom of God is for them. The second thing that Jesus does is he changes the concept of the kingdom of God to make it personal. We don't come into the kingdom of God through ritual or by going into buildings. Rituals and buildings can help us, but the beginning of our relationship with the kingdom of heaven is through the heart. Jesus infuriated the people of his day when he noted, Tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. You see, they could not conceive of the kingdom of God apart from the temple building, where religious ritual was practiced. Jesus, however, indicates that the kingdom of God is not dependent upon a building, neither is it dependent on a ritual. The kingdom of God depends on nothing but grace. God's grace, grace available to everyone, is the foundation of God's kingdom. Each of these parables told by Jesus supports the idea of that kind of kingdom. It is a kingdom of forgiveness. It is a kingdom of justice. It is a kingdom in which we are called to participate in right now. Last week, commenting upon the announcement of the death of John Lewis, historian John Meacham made an interesting observation. Both John Lewis and John Meacham are Christian. John Lewis grew up not far from where I was born in South Alabama. Living not far from Troy, he experienced the pain of a segregated society, yet he felt God's call upon his life. As a young man, he dreamt of how God might use him. He began by preaching to the chickens on his daddy's farm. As he grew into manhood, he became involved in the civil rights movement, and when he died last week at age 80, he was serving as a representative from the state of Georgia. John Meacham is also a Christian. He is a committed member and active in the Episcopalian Church. So I was interested to hear his comments about this honorable man who had just died. I was interested in Meacham's historical and his Christian perspective. 
In his reflection, Meacham noted something about the kingdom of God. He observed that Representative Lewis, and he had a difference of opinion regarding God's coming kingdom. He said, John Lewis believed it is attainable here and now. Meacham, perhaps because of his work as an historian, sees it differently. He believes also in God's kingdom, but he does see its fulfillment this side of eternity. Both men believe in God's kingdom. Both men believe that we should work towards seeing God's kingdom come. Both men understand it must be a kingdom of human equality and equal justice and abundant mercy. God's coming kingdom is just like a mustard seed. It seems so small at times. It might be like preaching to chickens or expressing a longing for justice to a class of history students. But God's kingdom always begins with a seed, a seed that will grow. The kingdom of heaven is a little leaven that causes the bread to rise. It is a pearl that begins as a speck of sand, irritating an oyster that grows into a valuable jewel. And God knows that one day he will find the good and they will be blessed and they will be chosen. Justice will come. Mercy will prevail. Lewis and Meacham have slightly different ideas. So who is right? Is God's kingdom coming now or coming later? The answer is yes. We are to work right now to see God's kingdom come. It is not optional. It cannot be delayed. It may come tomorrow or the next day, but it is on the way. So do not allow yourself to fall into despair. Do not become angry and violent trying to force your concept of God's kingdom on someone else. Do not retreat into isolation and escape by waiting for the end of the world and predicting doom for everyone who doesn't agree with you. Please do not water down God's grace or make it so impossible that none can achieve it. Instead, open your heart to the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is coming for everyone. This has been Weekly Worship and Bible Study Broadcast, brought to you live by people who love, called First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. We would love you to contact us. We're not looking for money, but to connect you with God who loves you. Please tune in again next week as we broadcast from this radio station.